Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. 1 Samuel fifteen sixteen. I think that's what your notes say um, on your note-taking sheet. It's actually 1 Samuel 16. There's no chapter 1,615 or whatever is on there. It's 1 Samuel chapter 16. I hate Christian Leitner. It's a movie that ESPN has come out with in their films on sports documentaries. I hate Christian Leitner. Maybe you have no idea who Christian Leitner is, but he's the poster child for the Duke Blue Devils basketball team. And if you're a college basketball fan, you either love the Duke Blue Devils or you absolutely hate the Duke Blue Devils. Now, Christian Leitner is considered to be the greatest college player in history. Two back-to-back NCAA championships, all four years of college going to the Final Four. He is the poster child for the Duke Blue Devils. He's the poster child for college basketball success. But looks can be deceiving. How did it translate into the NBA, where it really counts? He beat out Shaq for the 1992 Olympic team, the Dream Team, in Barcelona, Spain. And he had played Shaq a few times in college, and he was drafted by the Minnesota Timberwolves. And the Minnesota Timberwolves thought that they had gotten their ticket to a championship. They had a future Hall of Famer. They, they had the ticket because Christian Leitner was this, this player that was supposed to have a good outside shot. He could play good on the inside. He was supposed to be the next greatest thing in the NBA because of his career in college. Now, needless to say, Christian Leitner never lived up to his reputation. When he got into the NBA, he didn't have that great of a career. He hasn't ever been this great all-star. He never won a championship. He's not in the Hall of Fame. He's not this great NBA player that everybody thought he was going to be when those college scouts and those NBA scouts were salivating to look at the next great thing. Looks can be deceiving. He did not live up to expectations. A lot of people put a hope in Christian Leitner to give them what they needed to win a championship, and he just didn't deliver. Now, here's a question for us this morning. Can looks be deceiving? Can we put a lot of stock in a person, a lot of faith in a person, maybe an athlete, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a romantic relationship, maybe it's it's a friend? And at first glance, you were mesmerized with them. You thought they hung the moon. You thought they were the best thing since sliced bread. But later on, they totally failed you. They let you down royally. And after you thought about it, you had that bitter taste in your mouth, and you think, what did I ever see in that person? Looks can be deceiving. Last week, we saw the rejection of King Saul. 
because he was blinded in his pride. If you remember last week, he was blinded in his pride. He thought he was religious. He thought he was doing all of these religious things to get on God's good side. And really, God said to obey is better than sacrifice. And so he had the kingdom ripped out from underneath him. God had rejected Saul because Saul had rejected God. And now the nation of Israel is, quote, unquote, without a king. Now, is that going to throw God off guard? Does God's plans get hampered because now there's no king in Israel? No, God's got a plan. I love the way John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion begins. It's a big book. It's a famous book. But the very first sentence, I think, rings true in that book. Here's what he says. He says in the very first words, Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two things the knowledge of God, and the knowledge of ourselves. Simple yet profound. The two greatest things we can have knowledge of is God and ourselves. Who God is, how he works, what's he all about, and then ourselves. Who we are, what we do, and what we're all about. And so this morning, that's what I want us to do as we look at this passage of Scripture in 1 Samuel 16. I want to ask two big questions. What does this passage in front of us reveal about me? What does it reveal about me? What does it reveal about us? What does it reveal about our hearts as humans, as as people? And then the second question, what does this passage reveal about God? And more importantly, why does it matter? So let's read together 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Right on the tales of last week when the kingdom had been torn away from King Saul. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely... Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. If you remember from last week, Saul has been rejected as king. The kingdom has been ripped out from underneath him because of his rebellion. And if you remember from last week, Samuel, the prophet, is very grieved by this. He's very upset. He's distraught. And he's grieving over what has happened. He's anxious. And look how the Lord addresses him in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I've rejected him for being king of Israel. Get up and fill your horn and go to Bethlehem and anoint a new king. Now think about what's going on in Samuel's mind for a moment. Israel's without a king. Israel does not have a leader. What's going to be the state of the nation? The nation's in flux. And Samuel, here's the prophet. He's kind of in charge of all of this. And so he's distressed. He's, he's kind of grieving. And so he's a guy here that's lacking some security. He's lacking some security in his future. He's not quite sure what's going on. He is distressed. And God says, go. Stop being stressed out. Stop being distressed. Go anoint a new king. Go down to Bethlehem. Go down to, the, to Jesse and, and look at his sons. And, and look how cryptic God is. God doesn't give him a lot of information. Look at verse 3. All God says to him is, you shall anoint for me whom I declare to you. He doesn't give it away. It says, you'll know when you know. Go down there and, and you'll find out who it is that I have chosen to be king. And so, who's the first one that walks in? Eliab. Eliab is the number one son. And, and, and Samuel's enamored with him. Look at what, verse 6. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This has got to be the king. Why? He's tall. He's the firstborn. Now, why is being tall such a big issue? We really don't know why being tall is such a big issue, but Saul was tall. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, we find this about Saul. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Saul was tall. Eliab was tall. God had rejected both the tall ones. Next week, we're going to get to Goliath. The Goliath was tall. Being tall is not good in God's economy. So those of us that are over six foot, we may never be king of Israel. No, I'm just joking. But Samuel's enamored here. He's thinking to himself, this has got to be the first choice. This has got to be God's man. I mean, he looks the part. He's the strapping firstborn. He's tall. He's good looking. He's got to be our next king. This is the man. This is it. He's looking in outward appearance, isn't he? He's saying, this is the man. And what does God say? No, I've rejected him. His heart is not for me. So what does this passage teach us about us as humans? Here's what it teaches about us as people. Simply this, we tend to trust in outward appearance and externals for security and purpose. We just have that tendency in our hearts to trust in outward appearance, to trust in externals for purpose and security. So I'm going to ask you a question. 
this morning. It's the, it's the title of the sermon, and maybe you thought, this is a weird sermon title. What is your Eliab? What is your Eliab? You may be thinking, well, what does that mean? Samuel looked at Eliab, the oldest, and thought, this is it. He looked at outward appearance and he said, this is it. Well, let me see if I can try to penetrate your hearts this morning and maybe see if I can uncover some Eliabs that you may, may have. And, and, and I have to be honest with you, these things that I'm going to share with you, I struggle with as well. And so I think these are, these are things that all of us struggle with. When we tend to look at outward appearance, when we tend to look at externals to put our trust in, these are some things that you and I might find ourselves this morning putting our trust in. So for some of you, maybe it's popularity. It's popularity. That's your Eliab. How do I look to others? Am I being accepted? What do I have to do to be popular? What do I have to do to to really be accepted, to be popular? And that's what you live for. I just want to be popular. That's your Eliab. That's That's your idol, if you will. Maybe for some of you, it's power. It's not popularity, it's power. How can I have influence over others? How can I have control over others? How can I manipulate the situation to where I'm on top? to where I'm in charge, to where I've got the power. And maybe that's what you're struggling with this morning. For some of you, maybe it's prestige. How can I look better than I really am? How can I get the accolades? How can I make myself look prominent and prestigious? How can I put myself on a pedestal so that others look at me as this prestigious person? Maybe for others of you, It's possessions. I put stock in how much stuff I can accumulate, how much stuff I can amass, how much wealth and how much stuff I can get. And so for some of us this morning, it may be popularity, it may be power, it may be prestige, it may be possessions. And here's the problem with all of those things. Whatever you put your trust in that's not God those things will let you down every time. Those things are always going to let you down. They will eventually disappoint you. They will not give you the security you want. They will not give you the hope you want. What happens when you lose your popularity? What happens when you lose your power? What happens when you aren't as prestigious as you thought you were? What happens if you lose your money and your possessions? These are all externals. These are external idols that wrap their dirty hands around your throat and they choke you to a quick death. So this passage reveals something about us as humans. Samuel was guilty of it and I think all of us are guilty of it. We tend to look at externals. We tend to look at outward appearance. We tend to look at these outward things as really the things that give us security, things that give us hope, things that we put our trust in. And so you need your idol, whatever it is, whether it's popularity, whether it's power, whether it's prestige, whether it's possessions, or anything else that starts with P. I couldn't think of a fifth one. You need to have your paradigm crushed. And you need to have your idols crashed. But here's the issue. Not only do we personally as individuals struggle with these things, but I think it's also something churches can struggle with. Churches can struggle with these things. For example, a church may say, you know what? We just want to be popular as a church. As a church, we crave popularity. We don't want to offend anybody. 
We don't want to make anybody mad. We want to be the popular place where everybody keeps coming. And so we're not going to address tough issues. We're not going to talk about sin because all we really care about is being popular. Are we the most popular church in town where everybody's flocking to us and we, we thrive on being the popular church? Or maybe some church says, you know what? I want the power. I want to be the most powerful church. I want to be the church that has power. I want to be the church that has prominence. We want to be the powerful church. And then some churches may say, you know what? We just want the prestige. It's about our name being everywhere, not Jesus, not the Bible. We want our pastor to be on the, the circuit giving um, lectures and going to conferences and writing best-selling books so that we can be the prestigious church that all the other churches look at. And in some churches, they crave possessions. If we just had more buildings, if we just had bigger budgets, if we just had more stuff, we would be what God wants us to be. And a lot of churches, here's what they value. Buildings, budgets, and butts. How big is our building? How big is our budget? And how many people are coming? And that's all that matters. And we will do whatever it takes to make people keep coming. And there's a danger for pastors to get discouraged. A pastor may say, you know what? We're not the most popular church. We're not the most prestigious church. We're not the most powerful church, and so we've got to start doing things to make ourselves popular. And so we're going to kind of compromise here and there, and we're going to keep the customers happy, and so we're never going to address things. So, so we get so discouraged and we get so insecure that we put all of our hope as pastors in power, prestige, and, and eventually we, we want to build this church that doesn't even, after all, look like a church. It's maybe a monument to ourselves. You see, we're obsessed with two dangers, I think, in church life. Pragmatism and consumerism. And let me define those two for you. Here's what pragmatism says, and here's how a lot of churches operate. Here's what pragmatism says. If it works, no matter what it is, let's do it, because all we care about are the results. If it works, no matter what it is, let's do it, because all we care about are the results. That's pragmatism. Consumerism says this. We need to keep the customer slash churchgoer happy, so let's give them what they want. If you build a church on those two things, you will not be a church for very long. Because what you're going to do is you're going to cater to people's tastes, and you're going to cater to whatever works, and the last thing you're going to look at is, what does the Bible say? This is our authority. And so even churches can get tempted to look at outward appearance, to look at externals, to find our security. And so what we need to do is we need to be aware. Be on guard. Beware of the impressiveness and allure of externals, of outward appearance. So you need to have your vision of things challenged. I want to show you a graphic here on the screen, and you tell me what you see. What do you see? Just yell it out. What do you see? Who sees an old woman with a big nose? Who sees a young woman with a feather in her hat looking the other way? I mean, this is an old picture, so hopefully you've seen this before. Some of you see an old woman. Some of you see a young woman. It just depends upon how how your vision is. All right, let's look at the next one. What do you see? (laughs) what do you see how many of you see a duck how many of you see a rabbit 
And now you're like, how many of you like can't tell because now it looks like a rabbit duck? <laughs> you need to have your vision changed. Because sometimes our vision is not clear. One of the key words in this passage of Scripture, it shows up over five times. You can take the screen off so it's not distracting. Because um, you guys are going to just look at that the whole time. Um, one of the key words used over and over in this passage of Scripture five times is the word see. See. The Hebrew word ra'ah. Samuel sees one thing, but God sees another thing. So the first thing we've looked at this morning is what does this passage of Scripture reveal about us? And what it reveals about us is we tend to see things, we tend to trust in, we tend to put security in externals, outward appearance, things that are outward that that are going to give us success, are going to give us hope. Second question is what does this passage reveal about God? Well, verse 7 is crucial to the entire book of 1 Samuel. Verse 7 is crucial to the entire life of David. What does verse 7 say? The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look, there's the word see, do not look, do not see on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. The Lord sees, not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but what does the Lord look on? The Lord looks on the heart. So here's the second thing we need to understand this morning. What does this passage of Scripture teach about God? Here's what it teaches about God. God chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. Now, what do I mean by God chooses the foolish things of this world to to shame the wise? What do I mean by that? Well, everybody was looking in their own wisdom, their own viewpoint. Everybody was looking at Eliab and said, he's the next one. It just makes sense. He's the natural choice. He's the oldest He's the firstborn, he's strapping, he's powerful, he's tall. In our human wisdom, we're always going to pick Eliah because he just looks the part of the king. But God defies logic. God does things that sometimes blow our paradigms. God does things that we sit back and we scratch our head and say, God, why why did you do it that way? God, why are you doing things this way? It doesn't make sense. And and the world looks back and says, that's just weird. Why in the world does God do things like that? And God does it so he brings glory to himself. So at the end of the day, nobody can boast about what they've done, but they look and see God has done a work. And see, here's the key thing we're going to see about David. What's the key thing we see about David? David has a heart for God. He's a man after God's own heart. Back when Saul was being Saul before the kingdom was rejected, Samuel gave him a warning. 1 Samuel 13, 14, listen to the warning that that Samuel gives Saul. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. God sees in David a man after his own heart. Now, we need to clearly define this. Because as we look at the life of David, we're going to see, wow, there's some things that David does that show, wow, he's pretty sinful. So this is what it does not mean. It does not mean a sinless heart. What it does mean is a submissive heart. There's a big difference between those two. Every single one of us in this room are going to sin. We're all going to sin. We're all going to fail. 
It's just part of being in, in the flesh. But for David, the issue was when he sinned, his heart always turned in a submissive nature back to repentance. So the question then becomes, what kind of heart does David have? He doesn't have a sinless heart. He has a submissive heart. A submissive heart. And that's the question that you need to ask yourself. At the core of your being and your heart of hearts, do you have a submissive heart? Do you have a heart that's soft towards God? Do you have a heart that's ready to repent? Do you have a, a heart that's pliable, that's moldable, that, that's, that, that faces your sin and is grieving over your sin and you, and you repent and you turn from that sin? Do you have a soft heart? He has a submissive heart. Now, there's two important details about David here that I want to show you. You may think at first glance, these aren't that important. You may just read right past them. But there's two things in this passage of Scripture that are important about David. Here's the first. We see it in verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. In the Hebrew, that word can actually mean the smallest, the littlest, the youngest. He's the least likely candidate. He's the least likely candidate. He wasn't even invited to the party. He's, he's the little boy that's behind the scenes. He's not on anybody's radar screen. He's, he's the rejected one. He's the least likely. He's the littlest. He's the smallest. He's the forgotten one that nobody would think would be king. He wasn't even invited to be lined up here for Samuel to, to look and see if he fit the profile. And why is it so important that David's the smallest, that David's the littlest, that David's the least likely? It's because God does that. I want you to keep your finger in 1 Samuel and turn to 1 Corinthians for just a moment. I want to show you a passage of Scripture that teaches that God does things totally different than we would ever expect. So, so turn with me, if you will, just real briefly, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, all the way over to the New Testament. Keep your finger in 1 Samuel, or if you're using an electronic device, just flip between the two. I don't know how you do that. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's start out in verse 26. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's reminding them of their, of their life. And here's what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Keep that in your head because next week when we get to Goliath, that's going to be important. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why is this so important about God? That God does things this way? It's so important for you and I to realize that God does things in this way so that none of us would ever boast. None of us would ever look at ourselves and say, it's my power, it's my popularity, it's my prestige, it's my possessions, it's all about me. No, at the end of the day, all of us would shut our mouths and say, if I'm going to boast, if I'm going to brag, if I'm going to get excited about anything, it's because Christ has done a work and he's chosen somebody like me to do it. The smallest, 
the least likely, the one that's out of the way. Now, I want to just give you some comfort. Does that not give you comfort this morning? That God chooses average, out-of-the-way, behind-the-scenes people that aren't that big, whose names are never going to be in lights, to do something awesome for his kingdom. God can use an average person in northeastern Colorado that doesn't look a lot to the world to do great things for the kingdom of God so that God gets the glory. God can use you. God can use you to do great things to bring him glory. And you may think to yourself, well, I'm a nobody. I'm kind of out of the scenes. I'm, I'm average. There, there's nothing about me that, that really stands out. And that's awesome because that's the type of person that God wants to use. It's exactly the type of person God wants to use. That's the type of church God wants to use. Now, I'm not here to brag about Emmanuel, but I want you just to think about something for a moment. This out-of-the-way place in northeastern Colorado that nobody's heard about in Sterling, this small, insignificant church, Emmanuel Baptist Church of about 250 to 300 people, just think about the impact we've been able to have across the globe. In India, in Nicaragua, and in Moscow. Not because we're all that, not because we want to draw attention to ourselves, but because God in his sovereign providence has chosen to use something small and, and, and average and out of the way to do something great so that our boasts may be in him. And that's the way God always does things. God does things the way that we would never choose. David's the least likely. He's the behind-the-scene kid. He's the littlest. And that's who God uses. All throughout church history, God has very rarely used the popular, the powerful, the people with great possessions. Sometimes he does, but for the most part, it's always average, ordinary people that just had hearts for God that he was able to use to do great things. So it should give you great encouragement. So not only, number one, was David the littlest, but I want you to notice the second thing that's said about him in verse 11. Maybe inconsequential, you didn't even think about it. What does the second, verse of verse 11, second part of verse 11 say? Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? He said, there remains the youngest, the littlest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Number two, David's a shepherd. David's a shepherd. It's very important because Saul's not a shepherd. The, the way we're introduced to Saul, if you go back and read how Saul's introduced, he's a bumbling teenager trying to herd a bunch of donkeys and he can't do it. In the Bible, being a shepherd is very important. Because here's what a shepherd does. A shepherd has two main responsibilities in the Bible, to lead and to love. David leads those sheep, and David loves those sheep, and God has been preparing him for all these years to, as king, lead the nation and love the nation to lead and to love. God has been preparing him as a shepherd to do what shepherds do, to lead and to love. Psalm 78 tells us about David's heart. Psalm 78, 70 through 72. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. See, God had been preparing this behind-the-scene little boy, inconsequential that nobody thought about. He's out there fighting bears. He's out there leading sheep. He's out there writing poetry, the Psalms. God is doing all these things behind the scenes to prepare David to be the shepherd, the shepherd king, the shepherd king. Now, here's an interesting thing about that. 
What does Samuel do when he finds out? God says, here's the man. Samuel anoints him with oil. And you think, well, okay, that was probably an Old Testament custom. Yes, it was. But do you know what it means to be anointed with oil? David is the Messiah. That's what the word anointed one means. In Greek, it means Christ. In that period of redemptive history that God had planned, David is the anointed one. He's the Messiah of his people. And as the Messiah of his people, he emerges as a shepherd king to lead and love the people as the Messiah, as the anointed one. That's what the word Messiah means, anointed one. He's anointed with oil. And not only that, look at verse 13. After Samuel anoints him as the Messiah in his time frame, the anointed one, the shepherd king, Verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. When it says the spirit rushed upon him, it really meant forced entry. The Holy Spirit just came upon David forcefully from that day forward. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Here he was now, the anointed Messiah, the shepherd king, ready to lead and love the people. David, a man after God's own heart the rejected one the behind the scenes one the despised one that nobody thought would be the leader god chose because everybody else was looking at outward appearance now if we just stop there we'd be faithful to the old testament text and i would preach a very good sermon that gives us information about the old testament but let me ask a third question this morning because i think it's where it ties everything in what does this tell us about us what does this tell us about god Third question, what does this passage reveal about Jesus, David's greater son? Where was David from? Bethlehem. And out of the ways, place that nobody would have thought a king would emerge from, Bethlehem. Jesus was from Bethlehem. And out of the way place that nobody thought the Messiah would come from. As a matter of fact, he was born in a smelly manger with farm animals, not a palace. Not the way the world would have chosen the Savior of the world to come, the Messiah to come from Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, nothing popular about Bethlehem. Nothing prestigious about Bethlehem. Nothing powerful about Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph probably didn't even have a lot of possessions. Listen to what Micah says. Micah chapter 5 says this about Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. David was the shepherd that came from Bethlehem. Jesus is the ultimate shepherd that's going to come from Bethlehem. The back place out-of-the-way place that nobody thought about. And David was forgotten. David was rejected. David wasn't the popular one. In the same way, Jesus was rejected. Jesus was not the popular one. Jesus was the last. He wasn't prestigious. Isaiah 53, 2-3. He had no former majesty that we should look on him. 
And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. We did not esteem Jesus because he didn't fit the profile. He didn't fit the paradigm. He wasn't what the world was looking for. As a matter of fact, 1 John chapter 1, verse 11 and 12 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. David was from Bethlehem. Jesus was from Bethlehem. David was rejected. David was the least of these. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was the least of these. And what did the Holy Spirit do after the Holy Spirit came and anointed David and rushed upon him? Remember Jesus at his baptism? When Jesus was baptized, what happened? A dove came upon him in the form of the Holy Spirit. And right after he came out of his baptismal waters, Jesus preached, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Listen to what? Luke chapter 4 says, this is the first, the sermon that Jesus preaches in his hometown of Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Just as the Holy Spirit rushed upon David and his anointing, the Holy Spirit rushed upon Jesus at his baptism and Jesus emerged as the anointed one, the Messiah, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And ultimately, David is the shepherd king, but Jesus is the full anointed shepherd king. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He rules and he reigns, but he reigns as a shepherd. The imagery of shepherd related to Jesus is so powerful. In Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now the word, when it says Jesus had compassion there, it's a strong word in the original language that means his gut spilled. Jesus is looking out at all these people and they're, they're aimless and they're hurting and, and they're, they're wandering and Jesus' heart goes out for them and says, they're like a sheep without a shepherd. I'm the shepherd that comes to lead them. And why is that so important that Jesus is your shepherd? Because as we sang earlier, our hearts are prone to wander and we definitely need a shepherd to lead us. And not only just a shepherd that leads us and loves us, but a shepherd that laid down his life. John 10, 14 through 15. What is Jesus saying about himself? I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus willingly went to the cross and laid down his life to save us from our sins as the good shepherd. Now, why is this important? Why is this important to you? Because in your blindness, in your sin, you're always going to choose a liab to be your king. You're naturally going to go toward a liab. You're naturally going to go towards external experience. You're naturally going to go towards power. You're naturally going to go towards prestige. You're naturally going to go towards popularity. You're naturally going to go towards these things. Your hearts are going to go towards these things. And given every time left to yourself, you're going to choose those things to be your savior. You're going to always choose Eliab to be your king. You're not going to look at the true king because your hearts are going to deceive you. And so what you need to do is you need to have your eyes open the way Samuel's eyes were open, not to Eliab to be your king, but to Jesus to be your king. 
the true one who can lead you, who can love you, who can forgive you, who can accept you, who gave his life for you. You see, notice, go back up and look at verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehem, for I have provided for myself a king. You know the word provided there? Same word for see. Same word just used in Genesis 22 when God provides a ram in the thicket. God says, I have provided for myself a king. In the same way that God provided for himself a king for Israel, God has provided for you and me the ultimate king, Jesus, as the ultimate shepherd king. And as the king and as the shepherd, what does Jesus do? He leads his people and he loves his people. And oh, how desperately we need to be led by the king. You and I need to be led by the king. Why? Because left to ourselves, our hearts are prone to wander, and like aimless sheep, we're going to go every which way. We need to submit ourselves to the ultimate king and follow his leadership and be led by the king. And oh, how we need to be loved by the king. You see, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. He looked at us as herding aimless sheep, and he didn't say, you know what, you're aimless herding sheep. Obviously, you're idiots. Why don't you get your act together? Does Jesus ever say that to his people? No, he laid down his life for the sheep while we were still sinners, and he demonstrated his love for the sheep. So we need to be led by the king, and we need to be loved by the shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd king. Where's your heart this morning? Is your heart looking at outward appearance? So I'll ask it again, what's your Eliab? What is that one thing that you're looking at outwardly to be your functional savior, to be your security, to give you hope that's not Jesus, that's not the ultimate shepherd king? What are you putting trust in? Is it popularity? Is it power? Is it prestige? Is it possessions? Is it a number of other things? Or are you finding security? Are you finding hope? Are you finding your trust? And the only one that can truly satisfy you, the only one that can truly give you the hope that you desire, and that's Jesus, the shepherd king, the one who laid down his life for the sheep and the one who leads the sheep to green pastures. And he has the ultimate power to change your vision, to change your heart to where you can come in repentance and faith to him as the ultimate leader of your life. So as we take the Lord's Supper this morning and we come before the Lord's table, may your heart be soft before the shepherd king. May you have a heart that says this. May your heart say, I want to be led by the king. And a heart that says, I want to receive the love of the shepherd. David was the shepherd king that was anointed, but Jesus is our shepherd king. Would you have a heart that wants to be led by the king and loved by the shepherd? So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Would you spend just a few moments in silent prayer preparing your heart to come before the Lord's table and really just let it be an act of worship. Worship the shepherd king because he loves you 
and because he leads you and he's worthy of all of our worship. Come before the Lord's Supper this morning. Maybe the first thing we need to do is to confess in our hearts what our Eliab may actually be. What is it that we're putting our trust in that's an outward appearance, that's in the external, that's not you, Jesus? And change our vision the way you did, Samuel, to, to help us see, Jesus, that you are truly the one who satisfies, that you're the one who can give us the security that we long for, that you're the one that can give us hope. You're the one that can forgive our sins. You're the shepherd king the one who leads us and the one who loves us. May we bow to you during this time and worship you for being our Savior. We ask this in your name. Amen.